Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It is Tuesday, October 19th, 2010, and we're delighted to have Nancy White with us tonight. Hi, Nancy. Hey, how you doing, Steve? <laughs> Great. Hey, why don't you turn your camera on for a second? We'll get it in the recording. People can see you live, see your okay. earrings. Okay, see my earrings. <laughs> okay, so here I am in Seattle, and you you can see my pretty earrings from uh, Rome. Oh, I actually can see them better on this side. They get hidden by my headset, which I think is a travesty, but my other mic doesn't seem to be working today. So uh, well, there's the visual. Really glad to have you here. Thanks so much for coming. A lot of fun for me. The Future of Education is sponsored by my employer, Illuminate, now known as Blackboard Collaborate. Uh, and the project I work on is Learn Central, the social network for educators that has Illuminate baked in. Apro uh, you know, uh, quite apropos to tonight's show. We also have sponsorship this month, just for this month, from uh, Redo from Microsoft. This helps my book budget. My wife is very glad to have some funds come in for the book. So thanks to Microsoft Bing and Redo. We have announced our Global Education Conference. As of today, we have 170 accepted sessions that are up on the website. We expect close to 300 when we're done. Uh, this is November 15th to 19th. It is free over the course of five days. If you submitted to speak, you, uh, you're probably going to see your name up there and you know you haven't gotten a letter from me yet. But that's coming tomorrow because we had a little bit of a glitch with the scheduling system. You are going to schedule your own time. This will be fun for you, meaning that if you've um, uh, submitted to present and have been accepted, you're going to get the schedule when you do that. So it's convenient for you because we recognize that this could be a nightmarish task otherwise. And we're all about the crowdsourcing. Coming up on the Future of Education tomorrow, Jennifer Fox talks about her book, Your Child's Strengths and the Strengths Movement. Uh, on Thursday, the uh, good folks from the Museum of Modern Art, MoMA, Lisa Mazzola, and Beth Harris are going to talk about their online resources and using that. Is there a tag for this thingy tonight? Uh, future of Ed, maybe? We could use that or make one up and put it in there. If you've missed the show, we have lots of recordings. <laughs> Uh, Kathleen Cushman, I, w I had to be away for this show, and Tammy Moore did this one for me, but thanks so much, Tammy. But Kathleen brought on two students to talk about homework. Kathleen's work in this area is really, really good and uh, fascinating. And with Alfie Cohn coming up um, on our show, I'll go back here because I did skip a couple of things. With Alfie Cohn coming up, uh, we'll be talking about that lots as well. Uh, we do have really some fun guests coming up. Uh, Diane Ravitch is coming on. Um, Vicky Bell is on her movie Race to Nowhere, which I'm hoping people are going to have a chance to see before that show. But it's like um, waiting for Superman, but I think uh, going to be a little bit better received um, by certain people in the community. Um, lots of fun coming up. And we did have some folks come on uh, from that Elevating the Education Dialogue show I did with Edutopia, so you'll see some fun names up there. Okay, and again, recordings are posted at futureofeducation.com. If this is your first time at Illuminate, it is a participative environment. Nancy is probably much better at this than me, and so she's going to encourage you to participate. There are several ways to do so. The first thing I want to tell you to do is to go up to View Layouts and switch to the wide layout. Hazel's asking if the recordings are podcasted. They are at futureofeducation.com. There is a, uh, a podcast link. So go to the wide layout. It makes it a little bit easier to see the chat. And you'll probably do that from now on when you're in an Illuminate session. <laughs> 
Well, I'm doing all of the talking right now, Nancy, so I'm going to move quickly. Okay, at the bottom of your participant window, emoticons for expressing, smiling, clapping. The, the hand with the green up arrow, the larger uh, button to push, is a way of raising your hand. And when you do get ready to raise your hand to ask a question using the microphone, which we'll do tonight, uh, do be sure that you've gone up to Tools, Audio, and run the Audio Setup Wizard to make sure your microphone is working. Uh, you can put notes in the chat. You can use the drop-down box below the chat to send private messages. But do be aware that Nancy and I see all of the messages in the chat area as moderators. Okay, and now we're going to give you a chance to let us know where you're participating from. So to the left of the map, look for a wand with a red star at the end. Click on that, and then click on the map. And we have Australia tonight. It looks like we have Peru tonight. We have New Zealand. We have North America. We have somewhere in the Caribbean, maybe. That would be fun. We have China. Very much fun to have folks from around the world on the show. Look at that. Three in New Zealand and two in Australia. Always a hoot, wherever you're participating from or if you're listening to the recording. We're sure glad that you've chosen to be with us tonight. OK, so Nancy, uh, I did read through uh, Digital Habitats. And I have to say, and I probably bought it six months ago and gave it a cursory glance. And then you know, the pressure of the interview coming up, I really dove into it this week. And, um, it's just a stunningly helpful book. Are you hearing that response from others who have responsibility for some sort of stewardship around uh, communities of practice? Well, um, first I have to tell you that one of my co-authors, uh, John Smith, is in the room too. And I'm sure that John is smiling because this was a labor of love. It took five freaking years to make it happen and because we were learning along the way. We had lots of things going on. And at one point, I think for me, there was sort of a sink or swim moment. And that was, we have to get this done. And I don't care what it is, but it has to be helpful. It has to be useful to people. It has to be practical and doable. So to hear you say that actually gives me great joy. And we have been getting feedback that it's useful and pragmatic, particularly to people who have inadvertently or accidentally become technology stewards in their communities, which I think that's, that's the most common type of technology steward. So to be recognized, to have the, the value that you add to your community be named and to be honored, I think, is important. So that's a long-winded yes. <laughs> well, I'm really glad. Are you comfortable with me doing a few questions before we shift into your slideshow and then and kind of a, doing a back and forth at that point? I'd actually prefer the conversation because sometimes I just get all wound up and talk a lot. Well, that's, that's the goal. OK, so for me, there's a very interesting uh, tension in the book. Um, and, and I think in part because I kind of came into this through Classroom 2.0 and Ning. And, and interestingly enough, Ning's not even mentioned in the book. But I kind of came in through the actual building of a community. And then I'm reading the book, and it's like having learned to drive a car and now, right, having learned to drive a car and then now reading the manual about all of the things that are required for a car to work and being kind of blown away. So the tension for me was the degree to which Classroom 2.0 and some other communities have been so highly experimental and innovative and not defined. And you're actually sort of categorizing, defining, and putting everything into place. And um, 
and the temptation that, that, that I'm guessing there must be sometimes to kind of fully plan, knowing that some good portion of what takes place has to be responsive and, and reactive. And I know you touch on that in the book, but do you have a sort of an easy way of kind of addressing that for us tonight? Well, I think it's interesting that you say we have it categorized. That's, that's kind of shocking to me. Is I think when we started out, the book was about updating a report that Etienne had written for the federal CIOs, the U.S. federal CIOs, on platforms for technology for communities of practice. And um, we, we, Etienne invited John and I and a couple of others into this process. And we realized quickly that the, the territory was changing so fast, you could not do that anymore. And I think it characterizes the, the rapid evolution of the market characterizes the environment in which we work. But the thing that was really interesting in that was that the market didn't only drive what communities can do, but how communities responded to the tools, how they innovated with them, how they rejected or accepted. They also shaped the technology. So I think underneath all of this, it is a constant evolution. And from a communities of practice perspective, it's about learning. So what is true today in context A may not be true tomorrow in context B. And the point is to develop a language and a perspective through which we can view this and talk about it so we can keep going as things change. Because as, as you noted, with Ning, Ning hadn't, wasn't even existing when we were actually laying out the book. And we had an email uh, just today or yesterday. Someone said, well, you really didn't talk about Facebook. <laughs> you know. These things were happening so fast that talking about any one technology is uh, useless, futile. So being able to talk about what it is we want to do together as a community. Um, and how can technology and practices, and I, I stress that it's technology and practice, help us do that. So the categorization was more about how do I look at my community? How do I consider what it's doing? And then how can I scan the technology environment available today and say, oh, well, this might work. And then, you know, just like the conversation about how you embedded the audio before we started the recording, what are the little practices that change the experience? And often they're little things. Um, so it, it is a constantly shifting sandy beach, for sure. And Carol. Um, uh, Digital Habitat's the movie. I, I'm laughing inside. Well, so you do a really good job, I think, in talking about how the technology, sh the communities drive the technology, and the technology drives communities. And as I'm reading the book, I'm thinking uh, a lot of times I get asked questions about, in particular because I did so much work for Ning, about building a, a community or a community of practice for education. And very much it's seen as a top-down kind of project that an administrator is taking on. And, and I think the book will really help in providing sort of a platform for saying, here are the variety of things that can take place. So we need to be, we need to be prepared that some of these are going to shift, and the ground's going to shift, and we have to be ready to move to different things if it's not working. Um, I'm going to quote John Smith on this one, because J John, he was the advocate in the writing of the book that the useful way to steward technology is to be from and of the community. And we recognize that there are a lot of communities that are created in a top-down manner, particularly their technology support. But that the real stewardship, regardless whether someone else told you you have to use X platform or whether you built it or whether you chose it, the stewardship really comes from within. So I think we recognize there is both 
external factors which may or may not be under control, but we still have to pay attention to what happens externally. And I'm sitting here waving my hands really hard on this, I'm like a good Italian girl, um, in that ownership is subtle and pervasive and it shows up in lots of different ways. And I think if people who are sponsoring communities can create space for that, they're going to be better off even if they have those top top-down decisions. And I'm seeing um, a, a, some of my uh, colleagues who know this chiming in with that, and I'm, I'm happy to see them in there uh, amplifying. So I use a word a lot uh, that I know is a really tough word, but uh, I think maybe it relates to the same thing, and it's the word authentic. And I've often felt like you have to really care and want learning to take place and want to help people in order to figure out how to move forward. And sometimes I feel like that top-down mandate is just creating another program, and it doesn't have it doesn't carry that sense of authenticity. I think authenticity is part of it, but I think it piles into a complicated set of circumstances, and one of which is limited amount of attention. So it used to be when someone made an offer to us, like our organization, and says, "Here, this is great community you can belong to." When we didn't have too many things we could belong to, it was easier to say yes to that, and then to kind of build our authenticity by joining. But now there are so many things we can belong to, and I think it was Etienne who brought this concept of the challenge of multi-membership to the book writing. And now I think that authenticity and ownership is more important because that's how we prioritize where we're going to pay attention. So I look at what Sylvia Curry, who is at Curry in the, in the chat right now, has done with SCOPE, um, a community of educators. And there's something that Sylvia does which creates just a lovely environment that makes you want to say yes. And I think she really exemplifies authenticity. Then when you're in, she engages people. She doesn't run the show, per se so that you can feel that ownership. So I think attention, ownership, and authenticity, maybe they're this kind of nice, lovely hairball. Does that make any sense? Absolutely. There are a couple of lines in the book that I uh, wanted to, to read because they struck me so powerfully. Uh, and one was that you said, or the three of you said, um, the new technologies point to the user's ownership of their software-mediated experience. They offer new ways to bridge or separate the individual and the group. In many ways, individuals become central players as tech stewards. And I thought that really sort of captured for me kind of the change that Web 2.0 has brought to participation. Well, it's very interesting because um, a lot of conversations around collaborative technologies or Web 2 technologies, or whatever you want to call them, are commenting that we're moving away from shared experience and more into an individually developed experience. And when I can control how I participate in numerous communities, can I, I decide who I friend and who I unfriend, um, the shared experience is going away, and we are becoming more of our own technology stewards. So I, and, and again, I think as you quoted in that book, the quote from the book is, there's some useful elements to that, and there's some very challenging elements to that, because I think it is harder to move together as a group when we have so many choices and we have so much individual control. Um, and we have to actually be a lot more intentional when we want people to have a shared experience. And then to add on to it, my favorite line about technology, which is designed for a group, experienced by an individual. And that's accelerating. That's, that's more than ever before. Interesting. Do you read Clay Shirky? 
Yep, I do. In fact, uh, we were lucky to have Clay be one of the early reviewers of the book. So um, in Clay's newest book uh, on cognitive surplus, he talks about sort of how fundamentally the direction has shifted from starting at sort of the top-down level to the individual who grows into participation. Um, and I, that, that keeps coming to mind for me in terms of, you said design for the group, but in many ways I sort of feel like we're beginning to design for the individual with an understanding of how that can morph into the group. You see, this is where um, I, I have some quib quibbles with Clay and with some of the stuff that Malcolm Gladwell has posted recently, which um, it, it seems to think about we, everything is heading in one direction. And I think what we have now is a palette in front of us from the individual to onesie, twosie, threesies, which I think are becoming more powerful because of the individual approach to things now. So our first entry point is onesie, twosie, threesies. Then to the defined groups where I agree I am member. Uh, I'm giving up a little bit of what I want for what we want as a group. It tends to be the place for projects for very uh, defined moving forward together. So we're moving forward together from the beginning of this hour to the end of the hour. So for a moment, we're a group. And then out to, to where the boundaries start blurring, and someone listens to this recording later and has a thought about it and blogs about it or agrees with it or disagrees with about it, to where you start having intersecting uh, interests, not necessarily overlapping interests, where someone interested in web two and learning is then connected to someone who's interested in learning through doing, who's connected through Web 2 and business. And all these things change. So this, this construct of one or the other seems to be limiting. And that we really need to think now, how do we effectively choose when we want to focus at that, that continuum? And as John says, this in the book we talk about the polarities between the individual and the group. It is constantly being negotiated. And I think we have a chance now to be a little more reflective and deliberative about what we choose. Um, I think inadvertently the move towards lots of synchronous events is a reflection of, yeah, I need to get people to pay attention together with each other, to learn with each other for a moment in time. And by putting a beginning, middle, and an end to it, we might have more attention, but how that artifact amplifies out through tweets or recording and how it, it affects those other people who we'll probably never talk to is different. And it's, they're both powerful, but it's not one or the other. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So uh, there are a couple of things I want to be sure to do in the hour, one of which is to talk specifically about education. One is to talk about the terms and the use of the terms that have, that have uh, grown up over a much longer period of time that I've been involved with this kind of thing. And then I did want to specifically talk about uh, technology stewards and technology stewarding. So uh, can I put you on the spot and ask you to describe what a technology steward is? And then I want to ask you a question about that. Sure. And if it's helpful, there's actually a slide that has the definition on it. Let me see if I can find it really quick. Uh, let's see. What would be my guess? My guess is right here. No, a little bit further. I didn't guess quite right. Um, OK, so there's a couple of slides where my text is screwed up, so I apologize about that. So a technology steward are the people with enough experience of the workings of the community to understand its technology needs, and enough experience with technology to take leadership in addressing those needs. So um, my shorthand is, you know enough to be dangerous with technology, 
but you know enough about the community that you can use both your intellect and your instincts to respond to the needs of the community. So it's not the traditional or more formal IT department role where it's my job to set up SharePoint for you. It's about finding that place in between. And then there's a range of practices that, that happen from scanning and being aware of what's out there. You know, what's the, now that Ning's gone paid, what are my other options? Um, you know, what, what's the impact of Illuminate being bought by Blackboard and how's that going to affect my use of web tools? And then, okay, we need a web tool meeting and what should we look at and how do we choose it and what are the bandwidth issues and who knows how to do this because, you know, actually the entry into a tool is easy but the subtleties, you know, the things that make a difference, those are the things that we have to learn and who can I learn from? Is there a community around this tool that we can learn from? Is there somebody inside our community that can help lead us? Is there a tool that somebody brings to the community? So that whole selection process and then, of course, there's a the configuration. Like your, your suggestion to use the wide layout in Illuminate is a, a very specific uh, deployment thing, how you've chosen to, to prepare the room. And then watching people use it, noticing what happens. Hmm. Did you just see how they did that? I, I'm constantly amazed still when I sit behind someone using Microsoft Word and see how they use it so differently than I do. And a technology steward being good at noticing that thing and saying, hey, could, could you try that? Yeah, Diego, translating the word. We have to ask John what, the, what his uh, experience is in translating the word to Spanish because John is a fluent Spanish speaker. But um, Sylvia says is to know how many risks to take and it's also to know when to say no. I think one of the really liberating things of technology stewardship could say stop, slow down, no, or go, run, risk, try, iterate, improve. These are all wonderful practices for technology stewardship and I'm getting all excited again so I'm going to pause. Well, I'm glad you're getting excited. So for, for those individuals who, who look at the process from sort of a meta level, um, and I, and I feel as those technology stewards need to do that. And my guess is that some people kind of naturally become have that capability. Do you find that there are certain people who are better at doing it than others or certain ways of thinking about it? Um, and, um, and how do you kind of help an organization identify the need for that kind of person and, and who to look for? Well, first of all, I'd say it often isn't a person. Often it's a bunch of people who are geeky and interested in this and they start picking it up. Um, in my experience when I'm working with communities where there's a lot of er, uh, late adopters or second wave adopters, I find it's really important to have someone who is not geeky part of that team who can say, wait a minute, what do you mean? Or, no, that's really complicated. You know, thinking about the brakes part versus the gas pedal part. And when people do it together, they can get those multiple multiple perspectives and I think that's a really important part of the practice because if we are doing this by ourselves we have a, a bad habit of designing for ourselves. So for example I would rather send an email than pick up the phone but once I'm on the phone I'm fine but I'm not a phone picker upper. So I would tend to design too much text-based work. I mean it's, it's what I was used to it was what I was quote unquote raised on online. Um, but if I'm working with people with different preferences and different perspectives, we'll start thinking about really designing with and for each other, not just for ourselves. I think I want to go back, too, to a comment that Jackie made is that what if people around don't want a technology steward? And I think that, 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 that really gobsmacked me because in my experience, most people are looking for someone to help them. But 
they also resist someone telling them what to do. So, so Jackie, I'm kind of curious what kind of resistance you were talking about, because I think there's something very interesting there um, to that. I would say I've found resistance in very techie communities, because they know everything, of course, and they don't want anyone else to do it for them, and that's actually sort of a unique situation. So Jackie, if you want to uh, kind of dive into that, feel free to raise your hand and we'll give you the mic, and while we're waiting to see if you do. Nancy, it, you know, it occurs to me that part of being a technology steward is a willingness to let things go and to allow sort of the audience to tell you what's working for them and what's not. And it does feel as though that's a certain kind of a personality who's, who's willing to make a mistake and kind of move on. Oh, you reminded me I didn't answer your question. <laughs> Um, I, I want to come back and answer that question and also your more general question about what makes a good technology steward. Um, Nick Noakes raised a question is maybe we need to define technology and I'll just put on the table that in the book we defined it very broadly because we actually did include telephones because that's one of the kind of entry points for a lot of the technology. So um, we, we did primarily focus on online tools and online technology, but I think you can talk about offline technology as well when you talk about this practice. Um, this tolerance for ambiguity is what I call what you were talking about, Steve, and I think there's actually an online skill period. I do a lot of work uh, bringing the practice of online facilitation into groups who are new getting online, and you know, people say, well, what makes a good online facilitator? And I say, two things I've noticed. One is people who are more of a global thinker versus a sequential thinker because the, the internet is hyperlinked. It, it doesn't flow necessarily from A, B to C and D. And the second is tolerance to ambiguity and the third is self-awareness. And self-awareness is what really leads to the first two, I think, because you can, you can cross those things over. I want to give uh, Jackie's waiting to, to grab the camera there. I mean the camera, the phone. No, the mic, no, the, the mic. mic. Jackie, uh, feel free to go ahead and tell us what you're thinking of specifically. You have the mic, and to turn your mic on, you click on the larger audio button. There you go. No, no camera, no camera. I don't want the camera. Um, yeah, I just started at a K-8 charter school, and they're very project-based, but they're very traditional. I only have about three teachers that are grabbing onto technology, and I'm just offering as a offering not as you should be doing this, and I send them links and all kinds of things, and today I got fronted, confronted that some of the parents had a, went to the principal because we were on a network and they want me to teach keyboarding skills. So when you're in a community, especially close communities like a school system, it's actually trying to change mental models, and I'm not even pushing things. I'm just making offerings and teaching my tech class, and I'm still getting, where, where, when am I going to teach keyboarding skills? And so. I don't know how you could be a steward when nobody wants what you have to offer. That's what I would say. So, so this is really interesting because it is about resistance to the technology. So one of the things that I think has been important for me is when I feel that or sense that or, or am told it directly, I again say, remember, this is not about the technology. This is about the community. So what do we notice? that the community is wanting to do together, and is there some area where technology can help them do it together better? So it's so easy to fall into the, ooh, that's a cool tech tool, and in fact, part of our role as tech stewards is to experiment and to be a little bit geeky, but the primary focus is to understand what 
the community wants to do together, how they want to be together. So we're being together, and I can tell you're here by the list and the participant list. Um, that's one way of being together. If, if I need, as a teacher of uh, math, to connect with other teachers at charter schools who are doing project-based learning in math, that might be the door opener and giving them some kind of tantalizing, you know, connection, that little bit of zip that goes between two people who have something in common and they can learn from each other. And think about those things. Um, to me, this is, this is really, really an important part of it. And it takes it away from the technology emphasis a lot. Um, you had prompted a story, now I forget what it is, so maybe the story will come back. So I went last night to see the social network, um, and I've been wanting to see it for a couple of weeks now and finally got to it last night. And I'm intrigued by something, which is he's portrayed, as, as the creator of Facebook is portrayed as a, as a hypersensitive uh, individual or, or um, very sensitive to um, sort of uh, social needs. And I wondered, you know, is that in some ways maybe a little bit of a characteristic of people who tend to do well in these environments because they are constantly thinking about how other people are responding or receiving information? And I know it seems counterintuitive, but I wondered if there was a larger pattern there. Hmm. I, you know, it, it, would, it would be easier for me to answer that question from people who I know are natural facilitators, such as Sarah Stewart and Coach Carroll and Sylvia Curry and Nick Noakes and Diego Leal and other people who are in the room. I can't say I see that pattern as consistently across the, the technology stewards I know. And now that I'm reflecting on it, they're, I don't know, more diverse in some ways, because some are really super geeky. And some are people who are coming in from the facilitation side and becoming geeky. So there's quite a bit of diversity. I don't know. I'd be curious what other people think, um, you know, or, or John or anybody here to chime in on that one, because that's a great question. So feel free to put your response in the chat or raise your hand and while you're doing so. Um, I think it might also be helpful to define some other terms, uh, like uh, communities of practice, uh, communities, networks, and then specifically why you use the phrase digital habitats for the book. Well, um, you know, now I'm on the spot because you're asking me to define communities and practice in front of John who defines it I think better than I do. So uh, John, I'm inviting you to uh, improve upon what I offer. But a communities or practice are a group of people who share a domain or, or a practice in common. So we all care about making chocolate truffles. Um, we interact and learn with and from each other around that practice, and we use that to, to learn and keep learning and doing. So it's not just about learning, it's about learning and doing. And it's not just about learning, but it's about learning with and from each other. So it has community, the people, domain, what we care about together, and practices, uh, what we learn and apply out in the world and how we learn with each other in our community, and Jackie just put a link to, great, uh, to Etienne's um, good foundational definition. And John, okay, I just got the stamp of approval from John, so I feel better. Um, you know, it's funny, it's kind of performance anxiety, you know, talking about our book, but, but I'm talking and John's not, so it's very interesting. Um, the, the, the second, uh, oh, there's so many good questions in here, and they're flying by me. Steve, if you pick up a good question here, I, I don't want to lose them, and there were some really good ones. Um, 
my definitions about communities and networks, I would say, are my definitions. And they are not universal, nor would I claim them to be consistent, persistent, um, and entirely verifiable. But I found it really important to distinguish between communities and networks and understand that there's a continuum. But by communities, I tend to talk about a group of people who know they are in community. So there is some sort of boundary, and they interact over time. It's not a one-shot thing. I think it's really important. Um, we have lots of one-shot interactions now, and that is, to me, out in the network, which is people who can intersect with each other around relationship or content, as what we call in communities of practice domain. Um, those people may start aggregating, and I'm doing this little, you know, your hands coming apart, but they're coming closer together, and they create nodes in the network, and pretty soon they find enough in common that they could become communities. A community is, in fact, a type of network. It's a bounded network. Um, but communities have more flu uh, uh, in this network that I'm talking about, there's a more fluid boundary. Um, they can, relationships can intensify and then disappear. Um, and I tend to think of networks as beautiful places for communities to exist because you know you have someone in your community who's just like outgrown the community. And they're really important to the domain and you really like them, but they need a bigger world to live in. They need a bigger pond. You know, you can kick them out into the network, and they can be your connection to a wider network, and bring in fresh blood, and take out messages from the community. They have a bigger pond. Um, uh, Sheila's asking, am I using community as an operational definition for collaboration? Collaboration certainly is some of what happens in communities, but I don't think all communities are about collaboration. Some are about learning. Some are about playing. Um, some are about you know, just hanging out together. Uh, but it's about that shared purpose over in interaction over time. And I think, um, you know, all these different terms, collaboration, cooperation, projects versus ongoing learning, these are all these very interesting things. Um, oh, Jackie just asked the difference between communities of practice and connectivism. <laughs> okay, that is a zinger. I think communities of practice Liz is laughing at me. You should be laughing at me. I'm probably going to fall on my face on this one, but I'll take a try and then see if you guys can, can improve upon it. I know you're not laughing at me. You're laughing at the question. Um, communities of practice are things that emerge in connectivism, is that when people do connect around something they're trying to learn together, they begin to engage in that interaction that helps them make meaning. So they might do and practice. That community may not persist for a long time, so it may be a network of practice. And again, you know, this, this idea that we're moving towards more one-off, individually driven connections tell us that that boundary between community and network is not a boundary, it's a continuum. And that there are times when we want to intensify and focus in. And so I'd say in the, in the open, um, massively open online courses of Downs and Siemens and Cormier, now Cormier, Dave Cormier, is that they provide moments of focus in their daily newsletter, in their weekly web meetings. But then there's so much that's happening out, so I'm expanding my arms again, if you could see my body language, out that happens, and not everybody's experiencing it. There's these little bits and connections. And they're different experiences, and they contribute different things to our learning. There's some great links and great things going on in the chat, you guys. I'm, I'm, I'm acknowledging, but not, not exactly weaving it in as well as I'd like to. Just my, my disclaimer. <laughs>
I do want you to be able to say uh, something about the, the phrase digital habitat because I think it informs the book as a whole. Well, besides struggling for four of the five years to figure, or three of the five years to figure out what to call the book, um, I have to tell you that John and Etienne and I um, really have lots of different perspectives on the world, and it was really important to figure out how to weave those together. And one day, the conversation around the title, uh, you know, we were looking for natural metaphors. And we were thinking about what happens when you're out in the ecosystem. There's all these elements. And they interplay with each other. And there may be, you know, we may have a very local experience of, you know, sitting in the crook of a tree branch that's very particular to that tree. But when we get out of that tree and walk to the stream, there's a different experience. They're connected. Um, they're, they influence each other. There is a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? a lovely complexity and interconnectedness. And when we think about the digital habitat, people used to think in terms of the platform. But in fact, rarely is it the platform. And in here I will quote again John Smith in his favorite line about people are always, oh, now what's the word, John? Uh, hopping? No. What's your word about moving across different platforms? I'm sure you all straddling. Straddling, that's the word. I don't know. I don't know how I could have forgotten that word, John. Forgive me. It's the end of a long day. Um, is that we're always using multiple tools. So some people are tweeting right now um, uh, about this. Uh, at Howen, I don't know who that is because the picture's really tiny on my screen, is tweeting it out. Um, someone else will listen to the recording later. Someone will remember the song that you embedded early. And it is an ecosystem that we're not all experiencing the same way. And at Leroy H. says, you know, sometimes the straddling stretches us and we feel like our legs are splitting apart and our arms are being pulled on the rack. And I think that's a reality. And I think some of the resistance we see in some places is, I don't know how you can ask me to get one more log on or how you can ask me to pay attention to something else. So it does present a challenge. And Monica, exactly, it's an ecosystem that we're not experiencing the same way. And I think that has increased. Back when you know we were all on uh, you know meta network system, I forget what that tool was called. It's like everybody was on discussion boards, and there was like three flavors, and we all knew how to do it. And either you enjoyed the experience or you rejected it, and that was about it. And now, not so long. It's not true anymore. It's very different. Um, Jackie, I do too have a, a problem with a community of practice being developed by a single entity. Again, are these people hosting or enabling communities? Or are they trying to drive something? And I think this goes to a project that, again, John and June Holly and I are working on right now. It's a community of practice on network weaving. And we find a lot of people are talking about networks with a capital N. And the big N networks are things that we've decided that all five of these organizations should come together and collaborate. And we're convening a meeting. And you should all come. And then there's the little N network, which is, you know, these five communities are just keeping each other posted. We're looking at each other's blogs. Or we're tweeting. Or we have a shared tag about the thing that we care about. And we are, you know, keeping this pulse that's going between us. So yeah, it's, it's not about driving or managing. And there's a place for the big end networks. And there's a place for the little end networks. And in fact, I think we need to think more about that practice of the little end networks. There's an art to growing from small and intimate to something bigger. And, and when, when is that? Should, should we encourage that, Steve? And when maybe should we back off from it? OK. And 
Go ahead. Go ahead, Steve. Well, I was going to say, let's use that as a little bit of a springboard, because we're getting close to a place where we're going to shift completely to Q&A, and that will be fun for everybody. But I want to talk a little bit about education. Uh, and in the, in the preface to the book, the three of you make a statement together that you're focused on the same audacious goal, to contribute to the world's capacity to learn. So it feels as though this digital habitat that, that has a lot of um, electronic tools or internet tools uh, will substantively shape where uh, education with a capital E goes. Uh, how are you sort of viewing that? And, and what do you think, what kind of lessons or thoughts should we be thinking now about communities of practice and education? Well, it's interesting because I don't live in the big E education world. I work in the little L learning world. And so I think I see that question in a different way. So I work a lot with learning as part of our work, part of our being, part of our doing. A lot of informal or bridging between the structured into application learning. And I feel a lot of tension with the big E world. And, and you know, certainly my experience with my kids' education and how it's been, I think, for them a pretty dissatisfying experience. So when we talk about learning in the world, and particularly you might want to reference Etienne Wenger's Learning for a Small Planet, we're talking about learning in every element, not just in the big E education. So for me, in my practice, I'm really thinking about how do we bridge between the big E world and the little E world. And that means how are we opening the walls of quote-unquote classrooms or learning institutions, sort of like connectivism is, is looking at it from one perspective. But I'm looking at it kind of the smaller practices, which is when we teach something in a university course, how are we also connecting the learners to practitioners? How are we introducing them to the idea that when they leave this course or this institution, that their classroom exists out in that network or those communities of practice and those communities of practice? So that there's this more natural bridge between inside and outside, that learning is not seen in dished out in a course. That's only one way it's dished out. Um, and you know, as modest as a school of life, yes, lowercase, little l, that's what I mean, um, uh, Diego. So OK, I just lost track of your question. I, I was smiling thinking about little l's and big l's. You want to help refocus me, Steve? <laughs> I think you're doing a great job. Well, I, yeah, I, you know, I think you went exactly where I hoped you would. Um, and I'm kind of curious as if, if you feel as though there are some, uh, I mean, do you do have a couple of chapters at the end of the book about the future? And, and do you have some sense of things that we should be looking for specifically maybe as we move from the big E to the little L? Oh, I didn't think you were going to ask that question. I should have thought about that question. Um, one is, uh, understanding identity. So I think understanding how we express ourselves in different medium, media over the time of our lives, from young to old, how we use digital tools to express our identity, because that's an integral part of our learning. And so, you know, I'm definitely not one of those people who says block everything. I'm one of those people who says learn how to productively work with those things, because Blocking is actually not a real option once people step outside of the, the control of the school and people will step outside of the control of the school. Some people call it digital literacy. I don't really know. I, I, there's sort of interesting um, uh, 
conversation about that, and I'll, I'll leave that people to competencies, literacies. I really, I really don't want to get into that one. But it is about thinking about how we live in this world. Um, I think the second is cracking the nut of people owning their own learning and being motivated to learn rather than uh, learning towards the, the test or the certificate. To me, this is one of the biggest obstacles I find with learning in uh, workplace situations that I'm working with. And it just blows my mind that we continue to support the model, which is here's your learning objectives, here's the three things you have to do to pass. And I think that that's a useful way for adults to learn or for kids, for anybody to learn. Scaffolding learning is one thing, but I don't know. I don't, how did we fall into that hole? I'm not, not quite sure. Um, the, the, the last piece, which is, is to increase our multimodal ability to communicate, and this comes from my offline experiences with graphic facilitation and graphic recording, or otherwise known as drawing on big pieces of paper on the wall, which is finding different ways of expressing ourselves. And visual literacy is really, really interesting. And as Liz is, is, is um, pinging on to this here, I think we don't really understand how powerful that is. And the early digital world was so text-based. Um, it took us a while to open our eyes. And I think I'm not just talking about that easy to put up video, but creating things to express ourselves in different ways. I, I think this opens up another door. And I can't tell you intellectually why, but I can tell you experientially it changes people's experience together when we move beyond the words. Um, so with that, I'm going to stop talking for a second. So this is really a fascinating topic. And my guess is that to some degree, our participation in these digital habitats or communities of practice is informing our sense of how and where learning takes place. And it's it's driving us to ask those questions about the big E. Um, and especially, I've noticed in my own personal reading, I'm, I'm reading in a variety of places where I would never have read before as I sort of think about reshaping the structured uh, learning environment for my kids and for, or for other children and students. Um, this is the Q&A time. So uh, we're going to allow you to put it. If, you, if we've missed a question in the chat, please post it again. If you would like to use the microphone ask a question, use the larger icon with a hand in the green up arrow at the bottom of the participant window. So that lets us know that you want to take the mic and we will give you the mic. Um, Nancy, what, what did we miss in your slide? We're waiting for a question. What did we miss in your slides that, that you would want to make sure that we got tonight? Since I never really let you get to the slides. Well, you know, it would help if I turned on my mic. I guess there, there's a couple, but just flipping around, I think this one was important for me, um, which is in this new environment, we expand the variety of roles that we take on if we're wanting to help encourage, take responsibility for whatever word you want to use for learning. And I, I think it goes far beyond teachers. And, and mediators would be a good addition to this, um, particularly I'm thinking about a, a situation I was in a couple days ago, and you're, you're very much right, um, is we need to think in these different roles, and we need to understand where we're good, and we need to understand where we're not and invite our friends in, because this is not a solo gig, that to really move things forward, we have to tap into the, to the talents across a variety of people, networks, communities. So some of these roles are the facilitators. And you're thinking about facilitating is to, comes from the root, is to make easy. And it's really attentive to process, 
um, it could be very much attentive, attentive to connection. But I think that's also kind of echoed in the network weaver. So I will, I will pop a, a couple down from facilitators to network weavers, which are people who notice the possibilities for connections between people, between content, between communities across networks, and activate those connections. And this is a really interesting term that was coined, I believe, by June Hawley. It certainly has been advocated by June. <laughs> and I think it's one that really is emerging, and we've got a lot of intuitive sense about what it is, and we're working on describing what that means and to really understand the practice. So just like we dug into the practice of technology stewardship, um, I think this is an area where many of us are trying to dig into and understand it. June Hawley, Valdis Krebs, Beth Cantor, now John Smith and I adding into that. I'll go back up to the community leaders, which I think there still is a place in this world for a bounded group, that people who attend to that bounded group and community leadership, there are some things that we end up as human beings doing better when we're in a, perhaps a safer or protected space, when we're in a smaller space, in smaller numbers of people. And I think size of groups is a really interesting thing, and there's another uh, blog post going around about the Dunbar group, and I really recommend people read Chris Allen for group size, because he's really looked at this from a very interesting standpoint, and he and I have a, a long-standing wish to, to sort of cross-pollinate our thinking from the facilitation side to his more analytical and, I think, very critical thinking view of, of group size, which is really useful. But I think communities in their boundedness also become blind to things. This is where groupthink happens. And this is interesting to see that groupthink can happen in networks too. But I think the more bounded this can do it. The book is not uh, called Group Size. It, uh, Life with Alacrity is his website. Let's see if I can print that. Maybe someone else can um, do this. Yes, Liz, I like colored. It's funny, I was doing a slideshow with Chris, and he has a very structured template. And I came in with all these crazy slides. He says, all your slides are out of alignment. <laughs> and I said, oh, yeah, they are out of alignment. That's it, Chris. Thank you. Um, so the community leadership, I think there's still a place for us. And I, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think there are times when direction is useful. And even, you know, God help me, I can say the hierarchy word. There's a place when it tends to be useful and a place when it's really destructive. Yeah, he talks about the Dunbar number. Um, and there's lots of interesting variations and implications about technology and face-to-face -face that we could spend another six hours talking about. Um, we've talked about the technology stewards and really thinking about that practice. Um, I think one of the things that the network really allows us to tap into is diversity and independent thinkers. And really, this is, I think, the salvation of education is openness and diversity. So people who can bring in independent ideas and critically help us examine them. I think they're really, really nice. Um, and then finally, Chris made me add back in moderators. And I used to always take it out because I saw moderation as kind of housekeeping. And when you think about large-scale online interactions, it isn't all about the personal relational sort of interaction. There's a lot of stuff we do that is technologically mediated or about content stewarding. And so we're dumping that in the moderator bucket. Uh, I, I still think there's, um, you know, some, some interesting things there. But thinking about these roles and how they diversify and how we all don't have to do all of them, but we have to understand where our strengths are and then gather about us people who have the other strengths as to really get those multiple perspectives. To go back to, to, this, to this comment that came up early on uh, about seeing the world in different ways and together that diversity and those, that 
uh, patchwork or quilt of roles can be really productive. So I have no idea what my other slides were. I could probably look at my deck and see if there was anything. We should probably go to Q&A. Let's just do that. So if you have a question for Nancy, do raise your hand uh, or post it again in the chat. Um, you know, I am intrigued by the network weavers and just the, the whole degree to which it sure feels as though people who are comfortable involving other people have an advantage right now, that they're more likely to get things done that they care about. Yeah, you know, I think network weavers are definitely people who love people. And I use the word love there really intentionally because I think love is an important, powerful thing in education, big E, little e. Um, I, and I, and I, I think that's important to keep in there. Yeah, love, however you want to spell it. Um, Sylvia asked us, technology steward plus moderator equal community steward. I don't know. I never thought about equation, you know, of adding these things up. I always saw them as sort of an ecosystem. So that's interesting, Sylvia. I'm not, I'm not quite sure how to answer that. I'm scrolling back now. I'm looking at some of the questions. Anybody going to raise their hand? You're all so active in chat. So, um, oh, there we go. We've got a coach. Carol has a question. And then John, uh, John Smith, you know, I'd love it if there's something that you'd like to add to this. I'm going to give you the microphone and let you uh, come in if you feel like you'd like to. And Co Carol, I'm giving you the mic now. Thank you, Steve. And uh, good morning to everyone. Hi, Nancy. My question is kind of long. It's uh, back a little bit, but I was listening to another speaker only this week who was talking about e-capabilities and I saw some synergies between that and technology stewarding. And he advocates that there are four essential e-capabilities in designing and implementing for online and those four are strategic management, design and development. And so I wondered what your thoughts might be on where those pieces fit in the skills that a technology steward needs. Back to you. I have to tell, I tell you, at first I had a total visceral reaction to it, which was, hmm, you've just you know, made a list out of it and put it into a checklist. And, and, it, and it felt very linear. And I know that that was my intuitive sort of anti-establishment philosophy of the world. But I noticed my reaction was really strong. And so I said, why was my reaction so strong to that? Um, and I think there is a place for that approach, but I do not think that is the approach. So I think sometimes we're not strategic, and that's okay. If if I understand strategic mean, you know, this is the shared direction we're going at. There is some places where being steward of emergence to working with complexity. I, I look at the work of uh, Peggy Holman and her recent book, Engaging, Engaging Emergence, which maybe someone wants to Google that and grab a link. Um, for when you look at Dave Snowden's work about complexity and chaos is actually a very useful thing in certain contexts. He has the, the Kinevin model, which talks about simple, complex, uh, simple complicated, complex, and chaotic. Um, so if I was trying to get a software product done or I'm trying to get a group to learn a certain thing in order to go out in the field and do it, strategic management, design and development would make a lot of sense. If I'm trying to nurture a community of practice, 
of teachers who want to discover their practice, I'm not sure I'd use those words. Or maybe, maybe it's how we use those words. But boy, I, I, I did have a strong reaction. It was very interesting, Carol. Thanks for asking that question. John, I made you a moderator just so I would remember to call on you again. Uh, I'd love it if you um, had any kind of a response or thoughts based on what we've talked about this past hour. Um, well, one thing that that strikes me is the, the idea that technology stewardship is something that happens among friends. Mimi Ito and a whole bunch of people wrote a book on called Hanging Out, Geeking Out, and Something Else. Um, and I took a whack at connecting that with the idea of uh, uh, technology steward. And they call it tech mentor. And they, they studied very carefully what, how freshmen at UC Berkeley learn to use technology. And lo and behold, people learn from their friends. And, uh, you know, so, so to me, when, you know, I, we, I came across this book after finishing Digital Habitats, it made me think, oh, the, the, uh, some of the idea, you know, the role about a technology steward is, is natural. That's something that people do. We're kind of naming it and saying, well, when people are trying to come together, cluster, really focus where those strong ties become more and more prominent, whether they call it a community of practice or not, then somewhat more intentional action like a technology steward becomes a, you know, a real natural evolution. But everybody is you know, showing each other tricks about Word or about you know an app or this, that, or the other. And and I think that's that's kind of a natural and wonderful thing about being human. And and it's really important to remember that learning about technology is not something that happens in a class. You know, when like um I here's don't get me going on this, but one more thing, I had an interaction with a bunch of people in a class who came from a large corporate setting. And the older group really seemed to share an assumption that technology was something that you were taught to use. The younger ones in that group really seemed to have this idea that, oh, you know, you talk to your friends, you ask around, and you figure it out. And I, it seems to me that the older group had a real learning disability in the sense that they expected to be taught. That's a pretty strong saying, learning disability. Wow. Maybe I'm exaggerating, but, but it was, it's a learning obstacle in, in some ways, it, a, it, a challenge because of that assumption, that expectation. So, you know. I mean, one of my roles in working with uh, Nancy and Etienne was to kind of throw out an inflammatory statement that then gradually maybe we uh, kind of put to work in some way. So nothing sounds controversial to me after having, having had Roger Shank on the show last week. 
Um, so, Mitch, I'm going to give you a chance for a last word because we're a minute away from finishing up, and you are late at night and probably ready to to, to quit hours of illuminating. But uh, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks to Illuminate and Learn Central and Bing for the show. Last words, Nancy. Keep on learning, man. That's the way to go, with and from each other. Thank you so much for coming on. We easily could have gone several more hours. Uh, maybe we'll do that again sometime. But the book is Digital Habitats. And it's uh, well worth the read. And I hope if you haven't got it, that you might consider getting it. Leroy is getting his copy now. Um, thanks, Nancy. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Uh, sure appreciate spending an hour with you talking about this. And Nancy and John appreciate the book so much. Thanks, Steve, and thanks for the opportunity to come play in your playground. <laughs> We're glad you did. Thanks, folks. Have a great night, everybody.